And so again, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38 this morning. And the key truth we're going to see in this text is this. Faith surrenders to God's grace and submits to his word. Faith surrenders to God's grace and submits to his word. So let's see that now. This is God's word to us. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so this is our second week in our Advent series in the Gospel of Luke. And last week we saw with Luke's prologue and his purpose statement, he wrote this Gospel so that we who hear and read it might have certainty in the things we are taught about God and the Gospel from his word. And last week we saw in Zechariah and Elizabeth's story as John's birth was announced that the truth is that when we run to God's word with our doubts, That actually builds us up in the certainty of our faith. Your doubt is not an obstacle to growth in your faith. Actually, when you bring those questions, when you bring those doubts to God, that is often when he does some of his mightiest work in developing your faith. And as we think about our faith this Advent season, it's worth taking a step back and considering this question. How do you define faith? How do you define faith? That's a word that we use in in the Christian Uh, religion all the time. It's a word that's used in movies. Um, You know, the Hallmark Channel is replete with movies, and a lot of them, the plot turns on, well, I have faith. You know, that's why everything's going to work out. Faith is a word that appears in our entertainment. It's obviously important to us as Christians. So how do you define it? And that's an important question for you to think about, um, not just how would you define it on a test answer and on an essay or a short answer question, but how do you define it in the way you live your life? Because the way you think of faith and what that means sets the tone for your discipleship in a lot of ways. If we walk by faith, not by sight in this age, then whatever we mean by faith is going to shape the way we follow Jesus. So think about it. If you define faith too casually, you know, faith is just the religious preference box you check, you know, I'm a Christian out of all these options, and that's what it means to have faith. I've checked that box. I I identify as a Christian moving on. If you define faith too casually, then you'll likely grow very lazy and apathetic in your discipleship. It's just a box you've checked. It's something you've done way back when. It doesn't shape your life day to day. 
and you won't have much influence or energy coming from your faith. If you define faith too privately, you know, if faith is just something personal, just between you and Jesus, then it will likely not shape rest of your life and therefore most of your life. You just kind of have this icy palace of personal beliefs cordoned off from the rest of your life that no one else can see. And eventually, maybe you don't see how your faith impacts your life because you've, you've so sectioned it off. It's too private. But on the other hand, if you define faith too radically, if you think of faith as something that's absolute commitment to Jesus, no wavering, no doubting, high energy, good vibes all the time with very little effort or struggle, then you might actually be setting yourself up for despair and tremendous discouragement and disillusionment because you think faith is something out of reach. You, 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 know, you might think about faith too radically if you find yourself often saying, if I really had faith, I would do this. If I really had faith, I wouldn't be struggling with this. I wouldn't still be in this place if I really had faith. You might be thinking of faith too radically in that sense, too ideally. Listen to how John Calvin in the Institutes describes the life of faith for Christians. He says this, Surely, while we teach that faith ought to be certain and assured, we cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. On the other hand, we say the believers are in perpetual conflict with their own unbelief, and yet he or she who's struggling with his own weakness presses toward faith in his moments of anxiety is already in large part victorious. <clears throat> what Calvin's saying here is that if you uh, have too ideal of a definition of faith, you, you don't actually understand what faith is. Faith is not the absence of all doubt and all anxiety. Those things are actually a normal part of Christian discipleship. Discipleship involves battling your unbelief constantly, but doing so by running to Jesus and his word. And what you do when you run towards Jesus, when you press towards faith, as Calvin says, in your moments of anxiety, that often looks like surrender to God's grace. It looks like submission to his word by faith, not when you have all the answers figured out, not when you're on the mountaintop, but you do so by faith, trusting that what the Lord is bringing to you by his grace is what you need, even when you can't explain it all. And what we're going to see this morning is that Mary is in this way a very beautiful picture and example to us of the life of faith. We will see how by faith she surrenders to God's grace and submits to his word. And we'll see how that meets us wherever we are at in our discipleship this morning. So let's turn to the text together and see the announcement of Jesus' birth. As you look at the first two verses, verses 26 and 27, these verses set the stage for the announcement of Jesus' birth. Um, Luke explains straight away that it's six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy with John the Baptist. So six months later, God sends Gabriel to proclaim his word again. Heaven's messenger is on the move because God's will, his mission, is being accomplished on earth. And so now, Gabriel comes to Mary. And last time uh, when we heard of Gabriel, he went to the heart of the temple, which is in the heart of Jerusalem, the heart of Israel, God's people. And he went to Zechariah, a seasoned and faithful priest in the Lord's service. Yet this time, Gabriel goes somewhere completely different. He goes to Nazareth, which is a small town in Galilee. 
<clears throat> and Galilee was very far north of Jerusalem and the region of Judea in, in Israel. Judea and then Jerusalem, that's where Israelites thought, like, that's where God is on the move. The temple's in Jerusalem. If you want something important to happen, you go to Judea and you go to Jerusalem and you go to the temple. But now, Gabriel's going to Nazareth. It's a small town. Maybe, archaeologists estimate, maybe around 500 people at this time. And it was nestled along a road between Sepphoris and Samaria, two larger cities that were more significant than Nazareth. And so one way you could imagine Nazareth, and just make this real to yourself, is it was kind of like Emerson, right? Emerson's off of I-75. It's nestled between the slightly larger, Car- well, actually a lot larger, Cartersville and Ackworth, both of which are you know, much more significant in size than Emerson, but neither of which comes close to Atlanta. So in this case, you know, Jerusalem would be like Atlanta, and then Nazareth is like Emerson, just a little town on the side of the large road that most people just drive by that they don't ever think about, unless you go to Lake Point, I guess. Um, but the point is, it was small. It wasn't where you thought the important things would be happening. In fact, if you think of John's gospel, John 1.46, uh, Nathaniel says when he hears the other disciples coming to him and saying, hey, we think we found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. Nathaniel, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So the point is, Nazareth was not this town where people thought of very much. In fact, it was never mentioned in the Old Testament. It wasn't mentioned in any extant historical documents until the New Testament. It was a a nowhere, simple, ordinary town that no one would have thought much about. You never would have thought that that is the place where a messenger of heaven is going to show up and announce that the king that God has promised is coming. But so it was. Now Luke also tells us in verse 27 that Mary... The one uh, Gabriel comes to was a virgin betrothed to Joseph, who himself was a descendant of David, which is important. Jesus will be adopted into a Davidic family. That will be important later. Now, something you need to know is at that time, betrothal, it was much more legally binding than our engagement today. You know, if you break off an engagement today, you propose to somebody or you get proposed to and you're going to get married, and you break off that engagement, there is much emotional anguish and heartache that goes into that, but there's no legal ramifications because you're not yet married. But in this time, betrothal was much more legally binding. If you broke off a betrothal, it, it required divorce. It was very serious. It often lasted about a year. Um, and so at this point, Mary was probably around uh, 12 to 14. That's usually how old young Israelite girls were when they got betrothed. We don't know how old Joseph was, but maybe around 18 to 20. And so Mary is somewhere in that age range, and she's a young woman counting down the days until her marriage. She is betrothed to Joseph. And yet one ordinary day, at her ordinary little home, the angel Gabriel comes to her while she's waiting. And he says to her in verse 28, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Now this is a remarkable statement because again, remember, Gabriel had appeared to Zechariah on the right side of the altar in the temple. And he said nothing, he just appeared and then Zechariah got frightened by it. And then he says, don't be afraid. Here, Gabriel shows up at Mary's house and announces to her this, this great greeting, greetings, O favored one. And so he's in her humble home, and he addresses her like this, and he says, God is with you here in this very everyday place. And that's why Mary's troubled by this greeting, because it completely changes her self-understanding and everything she thinks she understands about God. Here she is, this young virgin, this young girl waiting to get married to Joseph, her betrothed. She's counting down those days, living a very ordinary life in a very ordinary small town. This angel comes and greets her in this very dignifying way. And she doesn't know what to make of it. So she thinks very deeply 
about what Gabriel says. She's trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. That means she's thinking hard. Why, why is he saying this to me? What does he mean, oh, favored one? What have I done that makes me stand out? Why am I a favored one? What is this angel talking about? And God is here with me? God's in his temple. Surely God is with Israel, his people, but God is here with me? Mary, what is going on? What does this angel mean? Why is he saying this? So Gabriel knows that Mary is troubled by his greeting. And so like he reassured Zechariah in verse 13 in last week's passage, he now reassures Mary, do not be afraid, Mary. And then he explains why. For you have found favor with God. And the word for favor here is the word for grace. Gabriel's explaining to Mary that she is someone upon whom the Lord has bestowed his grace, his favor. Gabriel's greeting here and his description of finding favor with God, this echoes the way Noah is described all the way back in Genesis 6-8 as someone who found favor or grace in the eyes of God. This is what it means to be a believer. You are someone upon whom God has shown his grace. And so Gabriel comes and he announces that to Mary. He reminds her, you are who you are because you have found favor in the Lord. He has given you his grace. And it's worth pausing here for a moment and just reflecting on the fundamental reality of God's grace in our lives as believers. Because when the Bible declares God's grace to you in Christ, does it sometimes trouble you? Do you sometimes find yourself like Mary, trying to discern how these things might be true for you? Do you find yourself thinking, how could God possibly forgive and love and want to be with somebody like me who's done the things that I have done or continues to do the things that I struggle and do? Perhaps you've read book after book and attended Bible study after Bible study and listened to sermon after sermon about grace, but you still find yourself thinking very cynically about yourself, feeling as though you're a phony, pretending to be a believer but not really one, and wondering if God's grace could really change your life. Perhaps you struggle to believe that. And yet here's the wonderful thing. This word that Gabriel uses when he says, oh, favored one, that it's, it's a word that means to bestow grace upon, to bestow to bestow the blessing of God's love and favor upon someone. And that particular verb is used only one other time in the Bible, and that's in Ephesians 1.6, where Paul describes God lavishing his grace, bestowing it upon all believers in Christ. And I think it's well worth our time to turn to that verse for a moment and hear it in its context. It's Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 10 is the context. You can turn there with me if you'd like. But I want to read that for us because, again, I think for many of us, We hear the word grace, and we either just skim over it thoughtlessly or, more perilously, we're troubled by it. And we wonder, could it really be true of me in my everyday, ordinary life? So listen to the glories of God's grace. This is Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, and here comes that word, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things 
on earth. That's the gospel. That in, according to the mystery of God's will, he would unite all things in heaven and on earth in Christ. And in doing that, he would make his glorious grace a blessing upon you in Jesus. Do you believe it? Do you know God's grace? And perhaps you say, I'm trying, but I just can't figure it out. And that's where the language of surrender is helpful. Grace isn't something you figure out. It's not a mathematical equation that you have to solve. It is a gift of God's love and favor freely given to you in Christ. Receive it. Rest upon it. Surrender to it. You have been brought to the end of yourself in Jesus, and you've brought to newness, been brought to newness of life in Christ. And so what's going on in Mary's life, this extraordinary grace she receives, it's the grace, Paul says, that we all have if we are in Christ. And it is an amazing gift. And if you are a Christian, you have the Father's favor, the riches of his grace in Christ. And time and time again, when you wonder if it's true, come back to the word and know it is. You see, what made Mary unique was not the grace she received. She received God's grace like we all do in Christ. What made her unique was the role God was preparing for her to play in accomplishing the mystery of his will for our redemption. And so we ought not push this text away from us and say, well, that's just something unique that doesn't really apply to me. No, this is how God works. He comes to us and by his word says, greetings, O favored one. Why are you favored? Not because you're awesome. Because his grace is glorious and he's given it to you in Jesus. And so having explained that to Mary and shown her the grace that she has in, in the Lord's eyes, Gabriel then explains the unique role that she will play in God's plan of redemption. This is in verses 31 through 33. He explains three things about who Jesus is and what he would do. First, he explains to Mary, he says, you will conceive a son, and he's indicating this will happen in a very extraordinary way, and you will call him Jesus. We'll return to all of that in a few verses. Second, he explains, Jesus will be great. Gabriel said back in, in verse 15, last week's passage, that John would be great before the Lord. Here he just says, Jesus will be great, full stop. And why will he be great in an unqualified way? Because he will be called the Son of the Most High. And he will be called the Son of the Most High because that is who he is. He is the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, now about to be made flesh in Mary's womb and dwell among us, truly God and truly human, one person, two natures without composition or confusion. This is the God-man, our King Jesus Christ. And Gabriel's saying, this is who you are going to grow in your womb, Mary. And then third, Mary's son, Jesus, will come and he will fulfill God's covenant with David. The Davidic covenant was announced to David by God directly in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you remember that story, David, he's, uh, he's secured his kingdom and he says, all right, God, I want to build you a house. I want to build the temple. And God says, I will build you a house. I will build you a, a legacy, a dynasty, a kingdom upon which I will put someone on the throne forever whose reign will have no end. It will not be thwarted or toppled by anything that happens in this world. It will not be defeated by any scheme of man or any power of hell. And this was a staggering announcement for Gabriel to come to someone like Mary and say, that covenant is now about to be fulfilled by a child you will bear, Mary. And it was staggering because as one commentator points out, it had been about at this point in Israel's history almost 600 years since a, a son of David had sat on the throne. 600 years. And in that time, 
It wasn't just like the throne was sitting there, you know, they kept it polished and nice and shiny, just waiting for the right guy to come along. No, Israel had been bulldozed by empire after empire after empire in the course of world history. They looked like they were in the dustbin, left behind, forgotten by the Lord maybe. And yet now, here comes heaven's messenger. Gabriel comes to Mary and he says, God has not forgotten his promise. And though it looks impossible, he's about to fulfill it and he's chosen you to be the mother of the coming king, Mary. This is your role in the story. So with all of this announced to her, in verse 34, Mary has just one question. She says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now compare Mary's question with Zechariah's question from verse 18 from last week. Zechariah, when he's told, hey, you and your wife will have a son in your old age, even though your wife's been barren, your old words, give me a sign that I can know this is true. He disbelieved Gabriel's message to him, although he did bring his disbelief to Gabriel. But Mary, her question is actually quite different. She doesn't say, how am I going to know this, demanding a sign? She says, how will this be? In other words, okay, I get what you're saying, but I'm not yet married, so how's this going to work? Can you, can you give me an answer to what I should expect here? She is actually, what Cal, she's doing what Calvin said. She is pressing toward faith. She's asking Gabriel the right question. She is an example of faith-seeking understanding. As some of the great theologians have described our life of discipleship, we believe the word of the Lord, and we seek to understand it by faith. We draw near to him with our questions and ask him to show us more truth. And so that's what she's doing here. And notice, Gabriel answers her, but notice his answer is not exactly a full explanation, is it? It actually, in some ways, raises more questions. It doesn't, <coughs> excuse me, it doesn't answer everything fully. And in that way, his answer will become an invitation to deeper faith for Mary, deeper faith in the word of the Lord. So he says, yes, you will conceive and give birth to Jesus as a virgin. How? He says this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and God's power will descend or will overshadow you. And the word that Gabriel uses here for over, or overshadow in verse 35, <clears throat> this word echoes the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters of creation in Genesis 1-2. It's an idea that is always bound up with the creative power of the Holy Spirit when he's on the move accomplishing his will. It also echoes the presence of God filling the tabernacle, the glory cloud, descending upon it at the end of the book of Exodus. And it's the same exact word that later in Luke's gospel in chapter 9, he will use to describe the cloud of God's presence descending upon the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus' glory will be revealed to the disciples for a moment. So this word, overshadow, indicates that the fullness of God's power will be at work here in the conception of Jesus. And so this makes the virgin conception of Jesus, something very different from any ancient myth. You know, the ancient myths were full of ideas of gods consorting with women, and, you know, you have Zeus fathering Hercules, for example, and these very sensualized myths and stories about demigods walking among us. But this is totally different than that. There's no scandal here. There's just the creative power of the Holy Spirit working a miracle in the womb of Mary that without any human agency, the Son of God is coming. And as we ponder this, it's worth asking ourselves, you know, do we marvel at the virgin birth and the incarnation of our Lord? Do we marvel at it? Do we ponder the meaning of it? Here we hear that the eternal Son of God humbled himself so fully by becoming flesh. Jesus willingly entered every stage of ordinary human development. So think about it like this. If you um, or someone you know 
has been pregnant recently, they've likely used one of those pregnancy tracker apps, right? Like you're this many weeks and they'll send you those notifications like, at this time, your child is now the size of a kidney bean. And now your kid is the size of a grapefruit and so on and so forth. Jesus, the eternal son of God, was once that small in Mary's womb. That's what it means for the word to be made flesh. It's amazing. And Mary's pregnancy with Jesus was a real pregnancy. You know, if you look at the artwork and the Christmas cards, there's the, you know, the halos and all of that, that wasn't there. That's artistic imagination. It was a real pregnancy with the morning sickness, the cravings, the aversions, the Braxton Hicks, all of that stuff that comes with regular pregnancies. It, it was there. This was a real human pregnancy. <clears throat> That's why the Westminster Confession of Faith picks up very significant language. It says that Jesus was formed by the power of the Holy Spirit and of Mary's substance. In other words, he's really Mary's son. In fact, he has, he has Mary's genes. And he only has her genes because he doesn't have a human father. And so he would have resembled her in his appearance. He would have looked like her. Hers is the first face he would see. <clears throat> All these beautiful concrete realities of human development, Jesus is taking that on and becoming made flesh. It is real. It is ordinary. And it is staggering for those reasons that our God who made all things, would now make himself one who's going to have to learn language and only be able to cry with his first breaths. And so this is worth pondering this Advent season. Ponder the humility of Jesus. And it out of the, the land of kind of free-floating sentiment and grounds it in your life and fuels your worship and your joy as you think and you, you ponder anew the incarnation and the humility of our Lord. That can fuel the warmth of your worship this Advent. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, if you look back at the text, um, Gabriel, after explaining all of this about, uh, about Jesus and, and his, his incarnation in Mary's womb, he also, at the end of verse 35, says, because he will be conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, therefore this means the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This will be, it's an ordinary pregnancy, but at the same time, the one who is to be born will not be ordinary. He will be holy, the son of God. He is human in every way, yet without sin. He does not inherit Adam's guilt or Adam's fallenness in his nature. And his holiness will grow and be perfected through suffering and obedience his whole life long. And all of that is important because what Gabriel is announcing is that this means as the holy son of God, Jesus is the one who can come as the new Adam the one who can atone for the guilt of our whole human race that we've had since the fall of our first parents. He is the one who is coming to save us. He is holy from the beginning. And so this, when we talk about the person and work of Christ, this is what we mean. The person of Christ is who he is, the holy son of God. The work of Christ is what he came to do, to atone for the guilt of Adam, to atone for all of our guilt and sin, and to draw us to the Lord himself by grace that we too might be called holy in him. <clears throat> now, although Mary doesn't ask for a sign like Zechariah did, it's very interesting. Look at verse 36. Gabriel gives her one. And the sign he points to is a relative of hers, Elizabeth. And he points to Elizabeth and he says, look, your relative Elizabeth, she's now six months pregnant in her old age. She had been called barren. Mary would have known this because, again, barrenness was often a very public thing in those days. People would have seen it as a sign of curse. And yet Gabriel's saying someone that everyone thought it would have been impossible for her to have a child is six months pregnant. And because she would have been six months pregnant, she would have been showing. It would have been undeniable Elizabeth was pregnant with John. So Gabriel's saying, look, God is already on the move, preparing the way. 
And if God can do that, then he can do what I've declared to you, Mary. You will conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he says this beautiful truth in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. So he's deeply encouraging Mary. He's grounding her faith in the reality of God's will and God's power and God's word, which he has now declared and revealed to Mary. And so hearing this, Mary responds in faith in verse 38. Notice how she describes herself. I am the servant of the Lord. She recognizes God's grace. It doesn't puff her up. It humbles her in wonder. And she says, I am God's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. So she has surrendered to God's grace at work in her life, and she is now submitting to the word of the Lord that Gabriel has delivered. She's saying, let this happen to me. I believe you. And it's worth pondering. Think about not only does Mary submit to God's word without understanding how all of this is going to happen fully. You know, Gabriel's told her what's going to happen, but it isn't a full explanation. There's still lots of questions. You know, when is it going to happen? What's it going to be like? Am I going to see something? Is it just going to happen? And one day I realize I'm now with child. Like, how's this going to work? There's still things she doesn't understand. But something she does understand as she submits to God's word is that this is going to be costly for her. Think about it. She doesn't know what Joseph's going to think. So when she goes to Joseph and says, I am with child, and it's by the power of the Holy Spirit, and this child is the one who's going to come and fulfill the, the Davidic covenant. He's the promised king. She doesn't know if Joseph's going to believe her or if he will reject her. And we know from Matthew's gospel that an angel comes to him as well and tells him don't divorce her because he was thinking about it. To do so quietly, though. But Mary doesn't know that yet. She submits to the word of the Lord, not knowing if this is the end of the life she's always hoped for. Not knowing if all her dreams are about to come crashing down and if she's going to be made an outcast. Because people are going to look at her, they're going to know, you're not married yet. So either you and Joseph were impatient or you were fooling around with somebody else. And so they would probably label her someone who was unfaithful, impatient, impulsive, some small town, unwed, teen mom. Mary submits to the word of the Lord knowing it might come at great cost and great shame to her because she is living not by sight but by faith in every word that comes from the mouth of our God. And so as we ponder that, listen to the way Pastor Philip Graham Ryken connects the significance of everything we've heard this morning about the virgin birth and Mary's faith and how he connects that to our lives today. He says this, God was able to bring a child from a barren womb that's John to Elizabeth. And if he, was, if he was able to do this, then by the power of his Holy Spirit, he could just as well make a virgin conceive and bear a son. And if God could perform the miracle of the virgin birth, then he is quite capable of handling the difficulties of our daily lives. Nothing is impossible with God. Now that raises the question for us. What seems impossible in your life right now? What seems impossible in your life right now? I don't mean, you know, winning the lottery or something, you know, far-fetched and abstract. I mean, in your discipleship, when you think about the word of the Lord to you, what seems like, that just seems like it happens for other Christians, but not for me. What seems impossible in your life right now? And then how can you store these opportunities to surrender to God's grace and submit to his word by faith this Advent season? You know, perhaps for you, finding rest in the gospel of God's grace to you in Christ seems impossible. The guilt of a particular sin may haunt you worse than the ghost of Christmas past. You just lie awake at night, haunted by something you've done, and you feel like that overshadows you more than the Holy Spirit does. 
You just feel stained by that. Perhaps there's a sin pattern that you continue to struggle with and it seems more stuck in your heart than those same five Christmas songs they play in every store this time of the year get stuck in your head. You just can't shake the sin and you think it's impossible for you to find rest in God's grace to you in Christ. Yet here you must remember what Gabriel says. Nothing is impossible with God. You are forgiven in Christ. Your sins can be blotted out by the blood of Jesus. If you're a Christian, they already have been. And what is possible by God's grace is for you to surrender to it, not to have to figure it out, not to have to prove it to yourself, but to receive it and rest upon it in Jesus. It's a gift. And so you get to submit to those good words of the gospel, knowing that they are true. You get to submit to that by faith. Perhaps for you, your loneliness just seems impossible to escape. No matter where you go, you feel unknown and by yourself. And that may be because you've been burned by a bad relationship in the past, Uh, Maybe you've had a bad breakup or you've had a bad experience in church, but you just feel like having meaningful relationships and connection the way you want it to be, the way you know Jesus intended the church to be as a family, that just seems impossible for you to experience, to accept, to trust. And yet nothing is impossible with our God. His grace brings you into his people. You belong here because he said so. You get to submit to the truth of that message to you, that you are part of his family by grace. Perhaps for you, as you think about your life, reconciliation with someone, a spouse, a child, an estranged friend or family member just seems impossible. You think, look, I want to, I've prayed. Every time we have this conversation, it's the same conflict, the same fight. I find myself just repeating myself from last time. It seems impossible. I don't think anything can be healed. I think things can only get worse. Yet nothing is impossible with our God. You can surrender to his grace and know that he is with you, that he has forgiven the same failure you've made a hundred times in that relationship. And you can trust that he is at work by his word and his power and his spirit in your life and in the life of the person you're estranged from and that he delights in bringing things together, uniting all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. He is at work in your life. You may not know what to do. Do the simple things. Surrender to grace Submit to the word of the Lord, doing the very ordinary things for discipleship, and trust that even though you can't figure out how to fix it, the Lord is at work, and you can trust him and stand your watch and wait upon him to bring reconciliation. You know, and lastly, as you think about your life, you could examine just the list of the fruit of the Spirit, and there might be one there, one part of the fruit of the Spirit, where you're like, that just seems impossible, you know, gentleness and kindness, and you're like, hey, you should watch me drive in traffic. Um, yeah, that, that'll tell you how gentle a patient I can be. And you know, when we say that, though, we speak very sarcastically and very cynically about ourselves, don't we? But notice, sarcasm and cynicism often hide a huge measure of disbelief and, and doubt. And rather than taking those things and running to the Lord, we say, look, you know, that could be true of other Christians, but I'm not like that. That just doesn't happen for me. I'm not an all-star. But the fruit of the Spirit isn't for all-stars, it's for all of God's people, And so surrender to the grace of God. Recognize that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and that is his fruit that he is bearing in your life. Submit to the word of the Lord and and do the simple things of discipleship and trust that the Lord can grow you in all the fruit of the Spirit, especially when it seems impossible because it is then that the Lord is bringing you to the end of himself or end of yourself and bringing you to himself by his grace and his word. And so that's what we see this morning as we Meditate on these things together. Luke 1, 26 through 38, it teaches us that we get to time and time again in the ordinary days of our lives, surrender to God's grace,
and submit to his word by faith. This is how we grow. Amen? Would you pray with me? Well, Lord our God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to come and, and behold the wondrous mystery that you would send Gabriel, this angelic messenger, to someone as humble and ordinary as Mary, and that she found favor in your eyes. You bestowed your grace upon her, and Lord, you used her uniquely in your redemptive plan to be the mother of your son. Lord, there is so much we could meditate on and consider and marvel at about the incarnation and the virgin birth. May we, Lord, take some time this coming week and this Advent season to continue to marvel that our worship might be warmed with great joy at who you are, Jesus, and all you've done. We thank you that you came to be the Holy Son of God, the one who would rescue us from our sinful plight and fill us with your spirit. Lord, help us to grow in the very places where we think it's impossible for change to happen, where we think it's impossible to experience peace and joy in your grace. Lord, would you be on the move this Advent? Help us to dare to have faith and not to give way to easy cynicism. Lord, help us to be careful not to define faith too ideally and think that our doubts or our lack of insurance and our anxiety means we don't really believe. Help us to see, no, you stir those things up because that means you're deepening our faith. Those things aren't counter evidence, but they are the places that you are often already at work in our lives. Give us the eyes to see it, oh God. And now, Lord, as we uh, remember your grace and we submit to your word, would you bless the uh, rest of our worship this morning? In Christ's name, amen.